Well, let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 1, verse 26. James chapter 1, verse 26, and we'll be reading through chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. So we continue this morning in the series that we have been in for some weeks, the book of James. And I think you have probably found it quite instructive and applicable to your own life. Uh, it is very straight shooting and direct, and that is really refreshing. There are some texts you come to that are much more difficult to understand their meaning and take more to flesh out, but James gets right to the point. And so we come to the book of James, James chapter 1, verse 26. This is the Word of God. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who loved him. But you have insulted the poor is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him whom you belong? This is God's word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we ask a blessing upon the study of your word together as your people this morning. O oh, Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. Amen. James, it appears, is addressing a profound problem in the church, not only of the first century, but a profound problem in the church in the 21st century, a profound problem not just in someone else maybe seated next, seated next to you, but a profound problem in you, and that is the blindness of hypocrisy, playing the actor playing the churchman, because there can be a blindness in hypocrisy. We, we know that from a man named Paul, from the most strict of all sects, he was actually, actually Saul, right? We know him as Paul later on, but um, he was a man who was zealous, wasn't he, for the law of God, for the Torah. So zealous, in fact, he exceeded all others in his zeal. And his zeal went so far as to persecute the church, but there was a blindness, wasn't there? 
Actually, I think there was hypocrisy because the very one he was persecuting was the one he claimed to worship because Jesus does not claim to be a man only. He claims to be Almighty God. He claims to be Yahweh. He claims to be the covenant God of Israel. And Paul was denying him, persecuting him, and pursuing God's people, well, all the way to Damascus. Or for him would be to the edge of the world. Blindness. How blind are you to your own hypocrisy? The more I read James, the more it seems that, that the Holy Spirit keeps revealing stuff in my heart. How about you? How about you? Hypocrisy can give blindness in our walk with Jesus. And I believe that's what James is saying. He's saying to so many within the church that your religion is worthless. That's quite a direct thing to say, isn't it, to the church? Your religion, and again, religion that Paul is using is not a negative context as we have today. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. You've heard that slogan within the evangelical world. Well, religion does not have a bad name in what James is communicating. Religion is simply practices that religions have, external, visible practices that religions have, and all religions have them. Christianity has all kinds of religious practices. And in no way are the Scriptures saying those religious practices are a problem. What is a problem is hypocrisy. Because you come to the text, verse 26, if anyone considers himself religious, and it does sort of, it sort of has this, you know, he's putting quotations around it, right? Anyone who's religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. His religion is worthless. His external practices of coming to church are worthless. His alms giving is worthless. His times of prayer are worthless. If he does not keep a tight rein on his tongue. And I do believe throughout the history of the church and the church of the Old Testament, we we see a plague of worthless religion. And here, James is addressing the problem of the tongue. The problem of the tongue. Now, we looked at last week, James chapter 1, verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So he continues with that theme. Anyone who does not have bit and bridle like a horse on his mouth, well, his religion is worthless. If he does not have it in control, his religion is worthless because he's already instructed, be quick to listen. And, and the context is quick to listen to what? And the context is the word, isn't it? And then slow to speak. Because you know how that works in your life. When you're quick to speak, what happens? I know no one wants to say, but you know what happens. Often not good things when you're quick to speak. And it appears that 
James is very adamant addressing the problem of the tongue in the church that he is writing to. And thus we need to be quick to listen to God's word, not to our opinion. And then slow to speak in response to that word. So that means we need to, again, think about what we're hearing, meditate upon what we're hearing, in order that when we do speak, we are speaking in a way that is controlled or that has bit and bridle of the Holy Spirit in our mouths. I, I like the, the, the illustration he gives of bit and bridle. That's how you control the horse, with the bit and bridle, which way that horse goes. Well, here we need the bit and bridle of the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God in our own mouths. How much problem would that keep us out of? How about you and your marriage? Gentlemen, how about you ladies? How, how would that prevent you from all kinds of unnecessary conflicts? It would, wouldn't it? There's many things in my house that I probably never should have said. But you can't take them back when they come out. And how that can taint the whole reality of your religion. What you say to others. How you say that to others. James says in James chapter 3 verse 2, he says these words, we all stumble in many ways. Let's just underline that. Can we, can we agree to that? We all stumble in many ways? I think James is saying something that is obvious, that every saint would have known in the first century and should know in the 21st century. But then he says, if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Again, that bit in bridle language. But what's the problem? We all stumble in many ways. The context of the verse helps you understand that. So there are no perfect men here or perfect women when it comes to the tongue. I like how James makes us feel very uncomfortable. It's fantastic. Rebukes are not very comfortable, are they? Corrections, we'd rather do without. But God does it for our good, doesn't he? He does it for our edification. He does it to build us up and not to tear us down. And he has some more instruction on the tongue. I, I like what James says about the tongue in James chapter 3, continuing, verse 5. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and itself is set on fire by hell. And then he continues on in verse 9, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Again, he's, he's very direct, isn't he? And it becomes more uncomfortable as you get through the letter about our tongues and how can, they can set the whole course of our life on fire. Do you think they might have had a problem with their tongues 
with what they were saying to each other in the early church of the first century. Just maybe, right? It's obviously a problem. But is it a problem in your life? Okay, that's the first century, but we're living in the 21st century. How about you? Only you can answer this. Well, maybe, maybe your husband or your wife can. Maybe your children can. Maybe your grandchildren can. Maybe your coworkers can because you're very different at church than you are at work. Oh, good night. At church? Hey, how are you? At work? Well, we shouldn't say. Because we're here to build each other up. But James would come back, then you're worth, your religion is worthless. Because your religion, your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ in the world must be the same in the home and in the church and in the world. So this tongue, be careful for. Because it's good at gossiping, isn't it? It's good at misrepresenting people. And you might even flower that language up with a bunch of niceties to make that gossip sound good and caring. And I'm so concerned. No, you're not. You're just getting entertained by the misery of some other person that you're sharing news about. I do think he's teaching that. That's happening here in this church. I think it's happened in every church, in every generation, in every culture. I don't think it's a exclusive to an ethnic group, but every tribe, language, and nation. So when I, I look at James' rebuke, it's, it, this is a reality, reality check for the heart, the reality check to evaluate my own tongue and your own tongues. And like we used to do more often to get a tune-up and an alignment, remember you had to get your car aligned a lot more. At least I remember that, getting an alignment in your vehicle. In many ways, we are, need, we are needing God's Word to give us an alignment of the heart and a tune-up of the heart so that we might use our tongues aright and so our, worth, our religion would not be considered worthless. Do you want to have religious wor- uh, a religion that is seen as worthless in the world? Because who does that represent then? Because you are an ambassador of who? Who? Jesus Christ, you're an ambassador to. So if your tongue is not bridled, it is not representing the King of kings and the Lord of lords in the public square. And James is saying... Then your original religion is worthless. Get a tune-up. You need a checkup. You need an alignment of your heart according to the word of God. And of course, this problem of the tongue, there is a problem with religion. James knows that in his context. We know that through the history of the world. The problem with religions is that, well, it is often man-made. Now, I want to go to Colossians really quickly. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. And I do believe there is a bent to the heart because although we are redeemed and born of the Spirit of God, there is still original sin within us. And I do think there's a natural bent in the church and in, I would say, in Christians and in the church toward man-made religion. We have a bent to drifting that way, drifting our, our hearts and our churches and our movements off course. And we go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, because the Apostle Paul is dealing with that directly. He says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship or the religion of angels. That's, that's the same word being used in James. Disqualify you for the prize. 
Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and has unspiritual an unspiritual mind puffed up with idle notions. Then skipping down to verse 20, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are aesthetic practices. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. I mean, these were considered ascetic practices, you know, like flagellating the body and disciplining the body to such a point that you might even become ill. But do not taste, do not touch, do not look. The problem is with these laws are that they're not in the Word. They're not what God has commanded. In fact, the Apostle Paul says what to his hearers at Colossians? In chapter 1, he says, Set your minds and your hearts on who? On who? On Christ, who is seated at God's right hand. If we're going to combat sensual indulgences, the problem with the, of the tongue, we need to be those who are setting our mind and our heart, and from the heart the mouth speaks on Christ. Setting our minds and our hearts on Christ. Because all the ascetic practices in the, of the world won't change the heart. It's Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, through the Word, that we, the saints of Christ's church, are changed. Now let's go to this notion of pure religion, or verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless, and look at the three parts. Well, that's actually two parts, but I want to look at three parts. The first we've already dealt with controls the tongue. If we're going to have pure and faultless religion, we need to control the tongue. We know that. Number two is there needs to be a care or a care for the poor. It's very clear here as it's laid out to look after orphans and widows in their tribulation. That's the word in the Greek. It's where we get the word tribulation from or in their distress. And third, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Well, let's look at the cares for the poor. Now, James, a little bit later on, in James chapter 2, verse 15, says this. Suppose, as an illustration, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does, not, does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Right? That, that's the... Coming back to worthless religion, right? We're coming back to that worthless religion. He's addressing that later in chapter 2, that obviously your care for the poor would be worthless because you would say, well, God bless you. May he provide for your needs, but you do nothing, right? I think that would be worthless religion that he's already defined previously. 
But this care for the poor is rooted within the Old Testament prophets, this care for widows and orphans in their tribulations. Of course, in the ancient world, this would have been, would have been the weakest of all socioeconomic groups imaginable, fatherless and widows. Aliens would be the third that are not mentioned here. But I want to read from, from Isaiah, a couple texts in Isaiah that I think are very helpful uh, for cares for the poor. Isaiah, the prophet speaking the word of God in order to rebuke God's people and call them to repentance and action, says this. Suppose, uh, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Clearly, he's calling them to repentance. He's calling them out of their injustice and to be a men and women who live according to the Torah. And thus, in so doing, they care for the widow and the orphan with substantial means and the alien within their gates. Later in Isaiah 58, he says these really beautiful poetic words, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Now, that's, it's a great phrase. Fasting is a is a form we use in prayer in order to often focus our attention on God. But here he uses that same illustration of fasting to say to us, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, is not is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with, with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Obviously, in Isaiah's day, there were great injustices against the poor. And it was that way in James' day. There was no social welfare net, safety net. If you were poor, often you were at the bottom rung of society and trampled down by those who had means. It was a brutal, ugly world. And yet, this is the same word to us in the 21st century. How many of us really care for the poor? Do we really care for the poor? Do we really care for the orphan? Would our homes be open? Would our doors be shut and locked or wide open for those to come in? It's a question that's not just for the first century, but for the 21st century. We can give, yes, we give monies, we give offerings, but how about us personally, our homes, our lives? Are they open to the poor? Are they open to the poor? I find that often my life is too stingy. It's way too stingy. Especially when you come to the Word, the word of God and, it, and you are looking God's Word in your face, I find that my heart is still too stingy. Not open enough. Not vulnerable enough to care. Ponder it this week. Ponder it this week for your edification and for the good of the poor, the fatherless, and the widow. Well, there's a fourth category too, and it's no favoritism. 
Maybe you call it a fourth category, third category, it matters not. But there is definitely a problem of favoritism in this church. Is that your problem? Do you have any problems with favoritism? Anyone have a favorite? Anybody play favorites? A good. Someone raises their hand. Because every one of us is probably very good at favoritism. And it's a very clear instruction by the Apostle James or the leader of the church of, James, of Jerusalem, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Faith and favoritism do not go together, do they? He's already addressed this, I think, this issue about worthless religion. Worthless religion is very, well, has favorites. But the religion that is pure and faultless has no favorites. Because favoritism is incompatible with faith. Why would we say that? What do we know about God? What do we know about God from Romans chapter 2 verse 11? God shows no favoritism, does he? He shows no favoritism. Who are we to make disciples of as, as the church? All nations, right? All ethnes, all ethnic groups, every socioeconomic group. And I love what Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, particularly to masters or slave owners. He says, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. No favorites with God. And of course, what do we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, his ministry? Did he show favoritism? What kind of people did he associate with? Maybe some of you kids know. What kind of people did Jesus associate with? Was it always the respectable, those with the longest tassels, maybe little bells on the end of their, of their garments so people could hear them and their religious practices and they could pray on the street corners and make certain they give in a way that everybody knows how much they have given? No, what did Jesus, who did Jesus associate with? With the unclean lepers, with the poorest of the poor, with the richest of the rich, with Pharisees and Sadducees. He even ate at their houses, didn't he? It appears that Jesus seems to have interacted with all different kinds of people from every walk of life. Clearly, the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry was not full of favoritism because he had come to redeem Israel. He had come to redeem all of his people, no matter their station, no matter their bank account, no matter their diseases, no matter their intellectual level, it matters not to Jesus. He came for his people without favoritism. I think it's an important, that's what James is driving home, isn't he? There's no favoritism with faith. There's no favoritism with the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, is there? The one who has existed from all time, right, he's always been, humbled himself and became a servant. And in fact, he gave his life, didn't he, upon a cross in order to redeem all different kinds of people. All different kinds of people. People like you. People like me. It matters not what we look like, what we have accomplished, what we've done. It matters not what disease we have. No, God shows no favoritism. And also, favoritism is a demonstration of evil judgments. Did you see that in verse 4? James is very clear. 
to make certain that his audience understands that their judgments are evil. He says this. I want to read it. Have you not discriminated among yourselves? Become judges with evil thoughts? I mean, the word is, you could say, evil opinions, reasonings, and conclusions. That's the language being used there in the original language. No, your, your, your judgments of excluding the poor or the smelly to sit at your feet or to be in the balcony, because, you know, we used to have balconies in some churches. Who got to sit in the balconies in the south? Who were up there? The slaves. Right? They were in the back. Because the place of honor in our congregation is obviously in the back, right? I joke about that because it's somewhat as true. It's like, we're going to sit in the back, Right? Make sure you get the back seat because that's really a good seat. But don't come to the front. But in many cultures, it was the place of the front that was the place of honor. It was the place of prominence in the sanctuary that's where you wanted to be seated. But clearly what they're doing here is saying, oh, you smell? And they're putting that person in the back. Or you can lay at my feet because there were no pews in the ancient world. These are our new uh, technology in corporate worship. I think the 12th century or something like that. So it's been around for a while. But Jesus says these words, doesn't he, about judgment. You know those words, right? Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So what kind of measure are you using when you make judgments? I think that's a very important point that he's making here. What measure are you using? Is it the measure of God? Is it the measure of the Almighty? Or is it the measure of your own prejudice that James is addressing here? And he says this, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the while... Well, all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Look at your own sin first, right? And often when we make judgments about other people, are we evaluating our own sin first? How do we usually judge people? How do you usually judge people? Do you judge them according to what God has said about them? Because God is far more merciful than we are, isn't he? He's infinitely more merciful than I am, isn't he? How, how does he treat sinners? How does he treat the dirty? Uh, what has he done to clean the unclean? He gave his life, didn't he? To make me who was unclean to be clean in the most substantial of ways to be made righteous even though I was not righteous and to bring me to God. And yet I use judgments upon people that have nothing to do with the Word of God, have all to do with my pride. Anybody been there? Pride is how you judge people. You don't fit into my box, so you're outside. It's so easy to do. This is not just a temptation of someone else. I'm saying this is a temptation of me. And of every believer that has ever walked the face of the earth, that's why Jesus has used this, this illustration that is timeless. And it shows what? The blindness of what? Hypocrisy, right? The blindness of hypocrisy in your own life. But he goes, 
It ought never to be in the church. It ought not to be in the body of Christ. We must make righteous judgments and not show favoritism. We must be like our Father in heaven who shows no favoritism. Isn't that what we're called to be? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? That's the call of Christ? I know we're all fall short of the mark on that one. But my hope is you will see your sin. You will see your evil judgments. You will feel the weight of God's displeasure with your action. Because it's good to feel that. It's good to experience that. It's good to know that. I've experienced it all week. And of course, favoritism is contrary to God's choice of the poor. You see that in verse 5? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who love him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are low, unless you repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, unless you see that you're a man or a woman in need of rescue and you need it now and only Christ can rescue Your righteousness is worthless to save you. It's worthless to save you. Favoritism is contrary to God's choice of poor men and women like us. So you come to the end of this text, verse 27. They're favoring the poor. How can this be? I mean, these are the very people that are trying to, they're trying to do all kinds of horrible things against you. You come to the end of that. You feel the weight of God's displeasure. Is there hope for failures? This is what I'm going to ask. Is there hope for failures? How many of you, how many of you have consistently cared for the poor? Or do you primarily focus on your own self-interest? Is that a fail? Or yes? How about keeping a control of your tongue? How well have you done? Just maybe today. And the third is pure and spotless from the world. Have you been pure and spotless from the world? Does the world easily influence you? What I experience is the way, in the way of God's word is that my failure, but is there hope for failures? Because I'm a failure. And you're a failure. Is there hope for failures? Well, James says these two beautiful comments in James chapter 4, verse 6. He says this, but he gives more grace. And I think this is in regards to failures. That is why Scripture said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you feel the weight of God's word, if you feel your own failure, that's good. Get low. Because he gives grace to those who are low. If you're arrogant and think yourself self-righteous like the Pharisees, you have no hope. You have no hope. And then he continues on in verse 10 of chapter 4. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will do what? He'll lift you up out of the dust and say, my son or daughter, and put his righteous robes on you and give you a fi- that finger on the ring like the prodigal son who comes back home. That's the God who's speaking to us, even if it hurts. The humbled heart 
is the hungering heart in the pursuit of pure and spotless religion. May we all be humbled this day. And may God keep humbling you and keep giving you the weight of his word so that you might experience his grace in a more powerful and sweet and abundant way as he lifts you up. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you speak to us. We're thankful that you rebuke us and correct us so that you might train us up in righteousness and pick us up off the ground. Oh, help us to be humble that your grace might abound more and more in us and that in being humbled, our hearts would ache to pursue a pure and spotless religious life, honoring you. Oh, Heavenly Father, hear the prayers of your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.